Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. There's no doubt the psychedelic renaissance is being driven by psychedelic business. Since 2019, 48 publicly traded psychedelic companies and another 44 privately funded ones have sprung up to drive psychedelic medicine and therapy into the worldwide marketplace. A report from Research and Market stated that the psychedelic drugs market is projected to reach over $10 billion by 2027, which begs the question, with so much at stake, what roles are women playing in the psychedelic business sector? In this episode, we explore some important questions like why having more women in leadership positions isn't just good for women, it's good for business. We'll also examine what the biggest roadblocks and opportunities are for women wanting to create a career in psychedelics why having more women and feminine influence is absolutely critical to the success of psychedelic businesses, and what specific steps women can take to ensure we have a greater level of influence in advancing the psychedelics space. Whether you're someone who's just curious about the emerging psychedelic marketplace, a woman wanting to create a career in psychedelics, or a psychedelic business owner wanting to set yourself up for the greatest success. I'm sure you'll find this episode illuminating and useful. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's episode is How Women Are Innovating the Business of Psychedelics. And I'm extremely thrilled to introduce you to my guest today. We have a group here of savvy female CEOs executives and entrepreneurs who are involved in psychedelic businesses, and they're going to discuss the challenges and the opportunities for women working in this sector and why feminine influence and leadership skills are so critical to the future of psychedelics and the emerging marketplace. So before we get started, I wanted to just share briefly about the origin of this group and how it came to be. And Esther, you really deserve a lot of the credit. For the original idea. I remember through a conversation we were having, we were talking about the need for women to be better networked within the psychedelic sector, and that it would be lovely to have some kind of group that was meeting on an ongoing basis that could learn more about each other's businesses and do what we can to support each other and learn together. And that really led to the formation of our networking group, Women Advancing Psychedelics. And I have to say, it has been just such an incredible pleasure these last few months to be in weekly conversations with you all, to learn a lot about your businesses and cheer you on and just look at additional ways we can be supporting each other and other women in the psychedelic business industry. So let's start by having each one of you quickly introduce yourself. Tell us about your current business or organization and what led you into this business of psychedelics. 
Thank you, Sonia. And I'd like to say it's been such a pleasure to meet with this group for the last several months, kind of the anchor to the month and makes you feel like you're not alone as a woman in business. So I appreciate it very much. My name is Esther Simmons-Foot. I am president and co-founder of Entheotech here in Kelowna, British Columbia. So we are a company that focuses on intramuscular ketamine as part of psychedelic therapy, which we call the Odyssey Method. And we've also been very fortunate to get Health Canada approval looking at macrodose psilocybin. In fact, natural psilocybin provided by Filament Health called PEX-10. And we're looking at patients who live with chronic pain to see if the psilocybin at this dose will help them be able to taper opioid medications. I am a pharmacist by profession, and I had a compounding pharmacy, integrated pharmacy, for almost a decade. And my work there was to help people with difficult-to-treat conditions by making up pharmaceutical compounds or herbal compounds and using very good quality nutraceuticals, just really trying anything and everything to help people who, in a way, had failed conventional medicine. And that led me to work with the group of doctors who prescribe medical cannabis. And I found that despite all of these products and ability at my fingertips, it still couldn't help everybody. And I became curious about psychedelics. And when I sold my business, I spent a year studying and learning, experimenting with psilocybin. And as the universe would have it, I met Fraser Johnston, our CEO, and started up with Entheotech. Let's turn the mic over to Susan. Would you introduce yourself, please? I share Esther's enthusiasm about working and speaking on a regular basis with an amazing group of female leaders and entrepreneurs that have the courage and the tenacity to work in the psychedelics industry. I've been working in nascent industries for over 20 years that include plant medicine and psychedelics. My own journey included running for politics to ensure that small growers and people in cannabis basically had an opportunity to participate in the markets. And also, as a healthcare practitioner, wanted my patients to have access to plant medicines in a legal way because I ran a cancer care clinic that predominantly dealt with post-surgical care for women who had gone through mastectomy treatments. And through learning more and more about plant medicine, I ended up starting one of the first companies in the space called Haven Life Sciences and was the CEO, wrote one of the first licenses to work in the space legally with Health Canada and obtained a Section 56 and have just continued on from there. I'm currently the VP of Operations at Pathway Health. And Pathway is committed to having multidisciplinary care that also includes ketamine treatments at our clinic, Silver Pain Center in Toronto. We offer IV ketamine done with supervision from anesthetists, which is pretty much the only way you can deliver ketamine in the legal market now. The advocacy in this space and the necessity as a woman leader to build the systems so that patients can have access to the medicines that they're already using in a safe and supported way has always driven my passion for this space. All right, let's turn the mic to Stephanie. Would you introduce yourself, please? Thank you so much. So my name is Stephanie Nieto. I'm one of the co-founders of Guella, 
and Mojo Microdose. But my path didn't start there. Throughout the last decade, I was building greenhouses in the Arctic for food sovereignty and food security. And when the pandemic hit, I felt my priorities shift. While I had fallen in love with day-to-day wellness and how to improve people's health, I really wanted to get more involved in the mental health side of things and and wellness, really. As a longtime underground advocate, I wanted to bring accessible psychedelics to communities. And a lot of that was kind of asking myself, how does one, you know, work in drugs and in psychedelics without becoming a dealer? Like, how do you start a company in the space? And so while talking to, you know, other brilliant founders who were already creating such valuable products and services in the space, we came up with Mojo Microdose, which was our way of speaking to microdosing and psychedelics and the benefits on your health while still staying in the legal market. So we work with functional mushrooms and other nootropics to deliver a microdose mimicking effect, that being energy, focus, mental clarity, and immunity support while staying, again, with fully legal ingredients. So that's what we're doing today. Anguela, the parent company, focuses on how-to guides for psychedelics. Thanks, Steph. All right, so let's pass the mic to Rebecca. Hi, everyone. It's always so nice to share a screen with you all. It's great to be here. I'm Rebecca Nicholson. I'm the CEO of 5D World. We are a mission-driven impact investment firm. We have many different arms. We do 5D Angel, which is angel investing. We do 5D Gives, which is philanthropy. We do a lot of support with Indigenous leadership. And we have 5D Ventures, which is our investment company. And we just launched our first fund, which is called the Progression of Consciousness Fund. And our main focus is on retreats and deep nature, community connection, the natural biomass of the medicine, and making deep healing accessible for people. I kind of grew up in a psychedelic community in Prince Edward Island with Back to the Landers. And hippies has kind of that negative connotation of being (laughs) lazy or smoking weed all day. So they preferred Back to the Landers. And it's fine. I find it so interesting that I'm kind of coming back to that world in my life right now. And it's so inspiring for me to really be in this space, specifically in the financial world and creating that bridge for people to make this type of healing more accessible. Our founder was on Bay Street from 17 years and up, and he brings the real experience in the finance world for many, many years. And I came from a real history of health and wellness and yoga, mindfulness, and also team management and execution and getting things done. So it's a perfect yin-yang combination within 5D. And we're just very lucky to be here and moving this along. Wow, PEI, who knew there was such a psychedelic base in that province? They're all from Ontario or Quebec, (laughs) the States. They they ended up on the island because they wanted to live off the land and have, you know, grow big gardens and build houses together. So (laughs) I love it. It's great. Go Canada. All right. And last but definitely not least, Nadia, please introduce yourself. So yeah, I'm Nadia Vander Hayden. I am currently the chief revenue officer for a company called Agrarius, which is an agritech startup, but we don't have to talk about that because this is psychedelic. So I'm going to go back a bit. I was actually previously the director of sales and marketing for SciGen, which was a psychedelic manufacturing company. And that's how I ended up meeting all of you through that industry and doing sales. So basically I was a legal drug dealer. We had a license with Health Canada to manufacture and sell controlled substances. And 
And so basically created and, and founded by my father. And he has a deep history in psychedelics, particularly in LSD. He was 30 years ago, an underground chemist and did his time and received a pardon and then realized many, many years later that there's an opportunity to continue the research in this space, particularly with his expertise. So it was a very cathartic and healing process to help build that company with my dad, because obviously when I was a teenager, you know, our family was kind of ripped apart by the drug war. And so very full circle to then 25 years later, 30 years later, he's given a license to make the same drugs that they put him in jail for. So really neat story to help do that with my dad. Part of my job was to create relationships with all the companies in this space. So I was very, very lucky to meet all of you and, and so many other companies and have a really kind of finger on the pulse of what everyone is doing just because they need this medicine. And although we were purely a synthetic manufacturer, it was really nice to be aligned with groups that were using natural products as well, because we didn't really take a stance on that. So my history though, first 18 years of my adult life, I worked as a first responder. I was a critical care flight paramedic. I did a lot of international disaster management and humanitarian relief. And through that, I burnt out and suffered from an occupational stress injury and probably diagnosable PTSD, but I haven't gone there yet. But the very reason I left that field and joined into psychedelics was that I see how much my colleagues were suffering. And I know that there's a solution here somewhere in these medicines. We just need to bring it to the forefront and have the regulators be on board as well. I've recently left SciGen and I am now, I have a new venture in a slightly different industry. However, this product that I'm working with specifically activates my cellular networks. And that is how the technology works. So there's a fungus mushroom connection here. This product is going to increase food crop yields in the future. So I'm really excited to join that team and still kind of have my fingers in some sort of mushroom network. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. What a multi-talented, multifaceted group of amazing women. And I have to say the conversations we've had over the last few months too are just so fun and interesting. So Again, I thank you for the opportunity to collaborate with you all on a regular basis. I'd like to kick off the conversation by talking about the number of women who are currently involved in management or leadership positions within psychedelic companies. And if you look at this sector overall, it's certainly a cutting edge emerging marketplace. Psychedelic medicine and technology and therapies are all very new and innovative. But if you look at the entire business environment, it still reflects an enormous lack of diversity. And my team and I were curious enough to go do our own independent research. And when we reviewed 45 of the top publicly traded psychedelic businesses and looked at the management teams and the people involved in C-level positions within those companies, we found that only 19% of those management teams are comprised of women. And I just saw another interesting stat by Lucid News, which reports that 68% of speakers or presenters that are being featured at psychedelic industry conferences are male, and over 90% of those are Caucasians. So there's lots of room for improvement. And aside from being just the right and moral thing to do, what would you say is the business case for having more women leading psychedelic companies? Because it's more than just an opportunity for women. It's really an opportunity for those businesses as well. 
I think for us, one of the big reasons, the business case behind hiring more women, particularly in leadership positions, often comes to what you're building and the audience that you're speaking to. There have been so many times in my career where I have worked on predominantly male teams and they have just missed the mark in terms of the building process. There are so many aspects that often are overlooked because if you're not really thinking about it, if you're not experiencing it, oftentimes you don't really build it accordingly. And so a lot of the time when you're not hiring women, you're really just excluding half of the population from the revenue that you could be making for the product or service that you're building. And I think that's my strongest reason, business case. Brilliant. Love it. Esther, did you want to chime in too there? Well, I was reflecting on this the other day and what I just kept coming to was this is a new industry and a new way of practicing medicine here in the West, especially with the Western medical model. And there's a lot we don't know. We have a lot to learn. And the only way we really can move forward thoughtfully is by listening and hearing and incorporating many diverse ideas. And I suspect that women are naturally better at that. Great. Rebecca, did you have something too? I just wanted to say that females can really serve as powerful role models for their employees as well and can really create that different energy within the company and really hold that space for their female employees, but also for their male employees. So even before getting into the psychedelic world, just that alone creates just a better work environment within companies. And I think that's such an important piece. Nadia, Susan, anything you'd add? I would love to back up a bit. (laughs) So in plant medicine, in cannabis, most of the companies were female-led before legalization. When the public markets took over, the small female businesses were basically knocked out of the legal market and unable to participate because of regulatory barriers, financial barriers, And because of the westernization of our system and the policy difficulties, it's very difficult to obtain licenses for these substances. It's very, very expensive to enter the market, which is why many companies went to the public markets. But as the CEO of a company that went public in order to gain monetary needs to continue our work and research, I find that whole skew of public markets where Women are generally not financed. Less than 2% of angel funding and general market funding will go towards female-led companies. So putting a female in the lead role is a risk that people have to take because we're generally not as well-funded as our white male cohorts. The same thing happened in cannabis. All women were exited from the C-suites as these massive companies grew. But I think that the realization that women add so much value, as Stephanie said, that value of diversity in ideation is so important. And more and more boards are looking to women to join. But uh, it's also women wanting to join this industry. It's tough being in the nascent industry, especially when you've had to battle in so many other industries to be a part of it in inclusive industries. Nadia, anything you'd add there? Some people like to say, oh, we're the same. We function the same. I don't feel like women and men do. I feel like the way we lead is very different. You know, we have a natural empathy and instinct that I think can be learned by men, but that I feel like we're just born with. And so if we have the right mentors and the right people to kind of foster and bring those instincts and and empathy into a leadership position, it can be a really powerful thing. As someone who just left a, a position and moved into another position of leadership, 
how I was selling myself was different. I made myself look different. I said, you want me as a woman in leadership because this is what I can offer that's different from all the other candidates you're considering. When you have women in the leadership positions at the ground bottom, they can influence the whole culture, the hiring culture as it moves forward. And so I certainly know that when I'm going to be hiring for this new company, I'm going to be heavily focused on women. That's a really interesting point. And I've actually seen a poll, I think it was by the Harris poll that indicated when they sampled across several U.S. companies that in general, teams wanted to work for women. They found that the environment's more, more engaging and that women handled things in a more effective way. So I think even in terms of the environments that are created within companies, women contribute a lot to that. And there's even a profit case too. I saw a study recently from the BBC this was focused on UK companies, but they found that the companies there that were led by women overall had profit margins 10x higher than companies that were led by men. And I think there was recently a poll in the States that indicated that too. I don't think it was quite as high, but overall companies led by women, I believe, were 3% more profitable than other companies. So it does sound like there's bottom line business profits to consider too when you're hiring women into your space, as well as all the other qualities and attributes that we bring. So let's look then at the psychedelic space, because this will be a very unique business space that requires, I think, some very innovative leadership. Why is it especially important, do you think, to have feminine leadership operating within this space? I think when you think about psychedelics, you lean more into the mental health world versus cannabis is much more of a recreational play. So with mental health, we think about health and wellness, and we think about taking care of each other. We think of that, a little bit of that maternal instinct of holding space and softening and empathy and, you know, really being there for other people. And that's just almost like a natural correspondence with the divine feminine and the energy that women hold just kind of naturally. And as mothers and really creating that energetic space for people to really just be in the psychedelic world and to heal deeper. I think that women really bring that into the workforce. Great. Anybody else? That's beautiful. And it's my experience as well. It just kind of goes back to this concept of being a natural caregiver and a person that is there to listen and support. And, and if you show up with that energy, you end up with everybody reaching out to you to be heard in a way that influences the company you're in and also is able to recognize the genius in that person and help them to flourish in their own particular genius. And I think that is a feminine characteristic that we naturally embody, but definitely our male counterparts can learn from. I was just going to say in line with that, in the business case, when we're building something that may change the way people look at the world and themselves, if you help someone have a positive experience with the space in any part of it, they'll come back, right? They'll tell their friends. The overall impact for the business will grow. And so leading with that type of energy, I think, is the best way that we can build bigger. I just wanted to add as well, if I wanted to work on my deep healing and I'm looking at different websites or different companies that I want to go to, and if I see an all-male board or all the advisors are men, that's not going to draw me in to spend $5,000 to go and do my deep healing with you know a company that's driven by men. And I think that's such an important piece as well with psychedelics. We're at the forefront of this brand new industry, and it's almost hard to call it an industry sometimes because psychedelics have been around forever. 
When we think about like Maria Sabina, who was the first shaman that allowed the Westerners to participate in ceremony, she led that. She brought that feminine nature. And we think about psilocybin specifically from Mother Earth. There's all these connections between the divine feminine. And it's not something that we should be ignoring. And it's not something that the men who are running these companies should be ignoring. They should need to start embracing this energetic system. There's some speculation that when it comes to psychedelic therapy, women may be engaging in that even more than men. I saw a really interesting study the other day that mentioned that women are more likely to suffer PTSD, eating disorders. Women over 40 are prescribed antidepressants at more than three to four times the rate of men. And one in every five women taking an antidepressant is doing that just to kind of get through the day. So I love that point, Rebecca, because if companies want to make sure that their services are going to appeal to women, they really do need women in those leadership positions to ensure that women's health concerns and needs are addressed. And that's being reflected to the general public as well. This sector is so diverse. And for it to succeed, it really is going to require collaboration amongst many different groups. If you think of the researchers, the mental health professionals, the entrepreneurs, the underground practitioners, the indigenous, the investors, it's going to take people, women or men, who have those collaborative skills to bring all those stakeholders to the table and to negotiate and communicate in ways that actually moves the entire sector forward. So I totally agree. I think having women in those positions, or at least men who have embodied some feminine leadership skills, is going to be really critical to this going forward. And so let's talk about that. What are the common roadblocks that are getting in the way of women advancing in psychedelic companies? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I would say, I think if you just look at big business, there is sexism, ageism, racism. We all know that. But you would hope that in the psychedelic space that this could change because of unique plants that we're working with. It draws in people with a different way of thinking about the world. But it is still challenging. I know for myself, I like worked hard and this is where I landed. But it wasn't just because of me, it was because of the people in our company. And I wondered, is that partly because our CEO, Fraser Johnston, is young? You know, he's in his early 30s and it doesn't occur to him that women shouldn't be in leadership. So you need a new way of thinking about how to do business. And sometimes it takes just an extraordinary man to empower an extraordinary woman to be a leader in this space as well. Our founder is young. He's 40 or 41. And same thing. He never even thought about it. It's one of those things where it is a different generation, possibly, that is a little bit more open-minded to doing things differently and thinking outside the box and handing over the talking stick a little bit. <laughs> Rebecca, I think that is an excellent point. You brought up a new generation of people that are not as gender focused. But if we don't have role models to look at and say, oh, you know, that's what I want to do. There's very few people we can look at. There's lots of other women working in the psychedelic industry, but are generally not positioned in places where we can see them as mentors or they're not accessible, or they've clawed their way to the top, so they're not actually interested in other women taking their position. When we don't see ourselves in positions, as you said, you look at a place that has five male leaders, your inclination is to bypass that company instead of you know, implementing the change that is required. It is remarkable how we've been having these conversations since the 1960s. 
Because I do think that's part of the issue too, right? Is women either not having the existing contacts and networks or not knowing how to break into the psychedelic network in general to find those opportunities. And Susan, I recall you'd mentioned some advice that you got. I think you were in a particular program about networking. I was taking a leadership course at Cornell University and it was leadership for women. And the end, they were just like, you just got to go and play golf. You just got to go to the bars (laughs) after you just got to, you know, break down those barriers and not, you know, as a woman with a family and kids at home, going to the bar after work was not my first choice. And I don't play golf. That conversation has been ongoing for so long. And really, at the end of the day, it comes down to integrating yourself into the work culture where most deals are done after work in a social setting and men go to the bar, they get loaded, they discuss business matters. That is the inclination. You tend to want to be one of the guys. Uh, it because turn into that a little bit, right? Like I remember I was getting off the phone with a gentleman that I was working with, with a different company and he was getting off the phone quickly and he said, okay, see you brother. And I was like, sister, <laughs> you know, like it's right there. It's right in our faces that it's a little bit of the brotherhood still that is still happening. And it's hard to kind of match that sometimes and to sit in that. And it also takes a lot of capital. And if we're talking about generational change, a lot of these, you know, older men, they have been in these positions for so long. So they're the ones that have the capital. Maybe over time, as we continue to shift, as I continue to speak to my own boys about women and women in power, maybe things will just continuously move in the right direction. I hope anyways. I've actually gotten off the phone with investors in the past and been called like sweetheart. It's such a weird uncomfortable thing. And I'm like, wow, I'm really hoping that the next generation will progress past this. But part of that as well, I wanted to comment on sometimes some of the barriers can be other women in the space. I think, you know, in this space, because there is a lack of women, sometimes it feels like, oh, well, you know, there's going to be a podcast, there's going to be this thing, only one of us can be a part of it, only one of us can, you know, participate. And so you end up competing with your people that should be your allies. And even throughout business school and all these things, it was kind of ingrained in us that there can only be one. (laughs) It's been really interesting to unlearn those habits and to make space for other women in the space and try to, you know, make everybody succeed. So I think that can be a barrier, but it can also be a strength. Like once you get over that hump, being able to find opportunities for each other is such a great way to make more work to help women succeed in this space. But it can definitely still be a barrier. And you'd hate to admit it in this day and age, but are there times that you don't feel that you're being taken seriously because you're a woman or in a networking situation, you're not necessarily being seen as someone there to network and perhaps someone there to potentially date? It's extremely common. I might take a bit of an unconventional approach to, you know, the way that I network that maybe some other people don't and and teach their own. Like, I don't judge how women want to network or how they want to dress or how they want to act. I'm like such a judgment-free zone. And I think that like, oh, look at her in a short skirt. Like, great. Look at her in a short skirt. She looks awesome. You know, like, I just don't care about that stuff. I personally actually play up my femininity. I play up my height. I play up you know, what I'm wearing. And some women might not want to do that, but that's just my thing. And that's how I create a memorable presentation of myself. Not everyone has to do that. That's just how I work and how I do business. And I don't use my sexuality. I do not lurk. I am all business, but I like to have a height advantage. And I know that sounds maybe superficial, but I find when men are having to look up at me, 
it gives me a position of power. I am very lucky to have that height. And then I wear heels to make it even more tall. But it's a silly thing, but I find it really works for me. And it gives me a position of control and that I can narrate or control the dialogue. I can, you know, shut down any sort of inappropriate behavior really quickly. I feel like that when you move through the room or the way that I move through the room, it's it's kind of a like, don't, I, I don't want to say I swear, but don't F with me kind of attitude, but then also engaging conversation and being approachable and talking and friendly and still have a smile on your face because it is about meeting people. And so, yes, that might be an unconventional approach. And I hope I'm not taking us back like two steps in our progression as women, but I do what works for me. And obviously when I'm there representing a company I'm working for, I'm there to do my job. And so if my job is to create as many contacts as possible, I'm going to do kind of what it takes to do that. But yes, the sweetheart thing, oh, hey, darling, or, you know, this sort of thing. I noticed that, you know, there's a couple of people at a conference in Florida last year, and there were some old kind of dinosaur type guys that were doing that behavior. And honestly, I watched them just get ignored. Like they were just ignored by the men and the women. I feel like that's over. It's just over, at least in the psychedelic space, which was so refreshing to see because people were just like, no, thanks. And like walked away from it. I don't care what money you have, what you want to invest. I just felt like they were kind of shunned with that behavior. So that was nice to see. That's great. There's a lot of studies that show that women are often less likely to promote ourselves or advocate for ourselves at work or through negotiations or to go for those higher level positions within companies, what role do you think has that played in your life or women that you've seen in the industry? I see it over and over again, meeting with men and meeting with women for executive roles or any role in the company. Men really sell themselves and they seem to know their value and their worth, whereas women have tended to just be willing to get along and do what needs to be done. And yeah, I find myself wanting to look through the screen and and say, which I can't say, but know your worth. <laughs> I did not see that I was ready for a leadership role or I deserved maybe a leadership role, but the work I was doing demanded it. And so I asked for it. The role I have in this company and where I'm having to show up, that requires the title of president. So sometimes I think, yes, we just have to know our worth, even if we're a little unsure about it. And then ask for it. I think imposter syndrome is so common with women, not just in this space, but just everywhere. And very similarly, I think a lot of the times, even like I personally have to fake it till I make it almost like just tell myself, yeah, I'm sure you can figure it out. Just say yes, ask for the things that you want and be really confident in it because who else would, if you're not confident in yourself, who's going to be, who's going to do that for you? But I see that all across, like on my team and other, you know, entrepreneurs that I work with. Oftentimes I have to remind people that like, you're amazing and you need to act like you're amazing because somebody else who doesn't have the experience and doesn't have as much knowledge as that you do will, you know, say that they do. But I think it's a very common thing. And I think one of the things that we can do to support that is remind each other of like, you are amazing. You're doing all these really cool things. And even if you don't necessarily know everything quite just yet, fake it till you do. That's exactly what the men do. They're like in a meeting, yeah. heard, they're like, they don't have the answer yet. But they're like, yep, absolutely. We can deliver that. No problem. And then they're like, get that figured out. <laughs> you know? And we're, whereas we're like, oh, you know what? It's not quite ready yet. We need to do some more testing. And then that's like the answer we give versus it's exactly that. It's selling it right away. And then because we can, we are completely capable of figuring it out. 
And that's actually the amazing thing about women is, is, okay, give us a deadline and, you know, okay, now I got to figure this out, right? We know we can do this. And, and so it's, I really like that you said that, Stephanie, because I think that's such an, and it frustrates me when I see women who are so capable, not step up to the plate when they can, or even if they don't know if they can yet, just do it anyway and figure it out as you go. So I think the perfectionism that women have can hold us back sometimes. And so letting go of that perfectionism and just kind of getting our hands dirty is the way to go. Like most people don't really know what they're doing, but you know, it's that level of confidence that says, you know, I I might not have the answer to this right now, but I'm going to find out the answer and we're going to make this work. And it is that level of confidence. And some people are just better at it naturally than others. And I think it is something that we can learn and support each other with. And I think this is why, again, back to this group is being really helpful for me specifically is to be around kind of the setting with other amazing women in, you know, power positions that have really kind of held that space for me to feel more confident and feel like I do have a place in this industry as well. So let's look at that then. What can women do? How can we be more proactive? active to create opportunities that we really deserve in this space. I think it would be lovely if, you know, the whole world bent to our desire and did this for us. But it seems like for these things to happen, we really have to be very proactive and take full responsibility. Any thoughts on what women can do to really assure that they have more opportunities within the psychedelic sector? I think one thing that has really helped me personally has been having somebody basically provide a roadmap as to what they would ask for and what they have asked for and what is common in the space. For example, like talking about equity and figuring out what type of shares there exist and what what are all the options. I've had mentors explain it to me at length. And then I've been able to take that information and tell my team, especially when we're starting to talk about bonuses and we're starting to talk about different share opportunities and equity opportunities in the company. It's great to be able to share that knowledge, but oftentimes that's just like hidden behind the paywall. And and so sharing that type of information, I think is something that could really be beneficial for anybody trying to get into leadership positions. I think one of the things that women often don't have coming into the industry is the the background and the knowledge. And I think that for young women getting in now, go back and do degrees in chemistry. If you want to be in medicine, it's about being educated in medicine. It's going to be physicians and PhDs and psychiatrists. If this becomes a medicine, then it's going to be a pharmaceutical career or a nutraceutical, as Stephanie Anguella has proven that the success of the nutraceutical market in providing functional mushrooms is something that people need right now. Looking at all the future of the jobs in this industry, and we don't know how it's going to shake out yet, but there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but make sure you have the proper and appropriate education. Nestor has a, is a pharmacist, like uh, Rebecca has financial knowledge, Nadia is a first responder. Leadership isn't something that you just fall into or, oh, it's a job I'm going to apply and I'm a woman. So therefore I should have that position. It's making sure you're suited for roles, that you are able to speak to the roles, that your resume reflects the roles and that for every single job you apply, you adjust yourself to that position. You're not just sending out 50 resumes across companies, but you're tailoring your expectations to every single role and making sure that you can do the role, even though you can fake it to them until you make it, that's only going to get you so far. In the end, there's a lot of work to be done and it requires gender equity and parity. Same thing goes for, for thought leadership and panel discussions too. Yes, we all need to have a seat on those panels and be up there, but 
there's nothing I hate more when you see a woman up there with five men and you can tell they just threw her up there and the topic is not her wheelhouse. And it's not fair to her. It's not fair to them. And it's not fair to the audience. And so, you know, I have personally turned down panel opportunities because it's not my wheelhouse. But what I do is say, you need to speak to this woman. She knows about this. So you get her up there instead of me. So I'm not going to take that seat just so I can talk. I want to make sure that the right voice is up there. And if there's an opportunity for a woman to be on that panel, it should be the, the expert in that field. Know what your expertise is and get yourself in front of the audience that wants to hear it. I think it's good too to be really open to what is presenting itself and what you're interested in, what makes you jump out of bed in the morning. So, I mean, for myself, it's a long and varied career to get here. I was a drafts person and I worked with all engineers, male engineers. And then I did a degree in policy. And that was very interesting to me, the idea of politics and publishing. And and then I decided that I was pretty bored with that and didn't know where it was going to go and headed into the sciences and did pharmacy and and then worked in a in a pharmacy and really disliked it. So I opened up my own business. I think be open. Don't pigeonhole yourself because actually all of those life experiences will come together. And now when you show up for a conversation, you have an ability to have an informed conversation based on that education and life work experience. I'm curious to hear your opinion on the value of networking. It seems that men have had a lot of success over the years by referring business opportunities to each other through their networks. And to me, it seems like that's an essential ingredient here in the psychedelic space. If women can be more networked and be more informed about each other's work in general and look out for those opportunities and refer opportunities in business to each other, it wouldn't take long, I think, for a lot of us to excel. I'm curious if you share that opinion or if you have any thoughts on that. I agree. We have to network. We have to unite. (laughs) And we have to change this conversation. Let's do it. (laughs) <laughs> I had somebody once say, your net worth is your network or the other way around. And I just completely agree. So many opportunities that I have had the privilege of participating in have just been because I talked to somebody and that relationship developed. I personally have this ethos where I basically will accept any meeting that anybody asks of me and it can really take up my day, but I find that it's really worth it because a lot of the time it leads to different opportunities for myself or for people that I know. And so it can be really daunting, especially in a post-pandemic world, like entering a room and talking to people and shaking hands and keeping up with relationships. But I think it's such a key factor in success, especially in leadership positions. I know that through our conversations, creating this podcast is one way to shine a spotlight on women in this field and make sure that they get attention for the good work that they're doing. And we've also talked about the potential of creating a free online community where women from across the psychedelic space can come and network, get to know each other, learn more about each other's work, and to be a lot more organized in our efforts to promote each other within the space itself. So we'll be announcing more of that soon. I really appreciate these ideas were birthed through the conversations we had. And I'm really grateful that all of you are really the foundational members of what we're hoping to create together here. And before we wrap, I'm just curious, what are your hopes and aspirations for this space? If you looked five years down the road, 10 years down the road and saw this psychedelic business space growing and emerging in a way that you thought was really exciting, like what's the vision that you hold for it? 
I know for myself, I really would love to see a East meets West complete integration of these different schools of thought meeting in the middle for the ultimate benefit of our patient, but not just the patient, the practitioner. It gets uh, depressing to work um, with your patients when you can't help them. So to have like people excited about being a doctor or a therapist and patients getting better and understanding that there's many different ways of knowing and that we can incorporate these different ideas together into one model. Our world is just accessibility, creating more opportunities for people to have deep healing in either retreat or clinical settings or with community, bringing in indigenous leadership and knowledge, um, giving, you know, first responders, BIPOC, LGBTQ, single mothers, more opportunities to access these medicines and plant medicines specifically is what I'm really, really hoping for, because I know that it can really help people and create a better life for that person, but also their workplaces, their children, their families in every single way. It just starts to snowball. I think one big thing for me that I would have hoped to see is just broad education and making psychedelics like a non-taboo subject, whether you're speaking to your kids or at work or, you know, with anybody and everybody. There's just so much opportunity to improve day-to-day life and long-term impacts on your health and wellness that being able to talk about it broadly and knowledgeably is something I really hope happens and and grows. Really appreciate everything that's been said about the medicines and the access and the amazing change that it helps people integrate into their lives. But I also see that the incredible task of changing policy and making not just legalization, but acceptance of these medicines is a full reversal of many, many years of wars on drugs. At least Canada has some access through our programs with Health Canada. One day that people will actually read research, appreciate research, and that evidence-informed healthcare will actually become a thing and that psychedelics will take their place amongst evidence-informed healthcare and that patients will have access to whatever medicines they need and that it will be equitable and not just for the rich and famous. I mean, the most exciting project that I would see with this is just really using these as preventative measures as well and building a generation of, of really resilient people where suicide rates are dropping and people are more in tune with the earth and more in tune with how we're going to save our planet versus, you know, greed and selfishness and all of these things that are, got us to where we are right now. I don't think they're the cure or the, the final answer. It's going to be a whole series of things. But I really think that if, you know, if there was a way that people were microdosing or doing these therapies in prevention before they get sick, I would really love to see that. And that's probably not within five years. That's maybe more like 10 or 15. But hopefully there's a path towards that one day. And, and I know there are some companies working on that. Wow, very compelling visions from all of you. Thank you for sharing that. And I know through the continued work you're doing within your own companies and organizations, those will become more and more of a reality in the years to come. And for those of you listening, if you're curious to learn more about our particular group, Women Advancing Psychedelics, we'll make sure you've got some contact info in the liner notes here. And I just want to thank you again for your time and sharing your wisdom. Any final words you want to end with before we wrap? Oh, thank you very much. And I would say don't give up. Keep moving forward. It only takes one person to provide an opportunity for you. That's all. We will leave it there. Thank you again, everyone. And thanks for listening. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.